Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Tuesday. My, what a beautiful day it is outside. The sun is shining, the air is warm. Um, it's just, if we need reminding, it reminds us of the glories of your creation. And we are grateful to be here. And we're grateful for this fellowship that you've called us to, a time when we can come together and meet new people and gather around the tables and chat and and as well as spend an hour or more really diving into your word um, because we know that your word is is essential to us it is we are to study it we are to chew over your word um, it is it is holy and um, it is it is a wonderful gift that you have given us. So just uh, fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm this morning. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So my friends, is there anything you would like to talk about before we get started today? Okay, Andy. I'm always nervous about this. The, the lame man, the beggar, yes, very good, chapter 3. Did he know Jesus? Did he even know his name? Do you think? Did it matter? Because what it says, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, Nazareth, walk. Okay, so Andy's question, which is a really good question. Um, the beggar, what does the beggar know about this? The beggar doesn't seem to know anything because he's just approaching Peter and John for alms, right? That's what he does. That's how he survives in this world, uh, in that world, of, of begging people for, for little scraps of coin and so forth. But Peter says to him, you know, I don't have silver, I don't have gold, but I have something better, essentially. And so he proceeds to heal him in the name of Jesus. And the question is, does the man need to know who Jesus is in order to be healed? And my answer to that would be no. That the healing power of Christ transcends, you know, our knowledge, right? It isn't all about us. We don't have to know everything. Jesus, Jesus heals whom Jesus heals and the power of Christ, the power of God is with Peter and and John and the other apostles, um, uh, including Paul, as, as the story will unfold. In these years, these early years, when the, when the, the Christian church is being created and, and begins to spread outward. So, um, you know, it, for me, it, it always goes back to remembering that God's work through all the Israelites through Jesus is for the sake of all humankind right go back to Genesis 12 3 when Abraham is told that all the families on earth will be blessed through you not just his descendants none no nope, all of the families all the peoples of the earth and so that just reminds us that God's purpose is to reach out to all kinds of folks and whether how the degree to which they're familiar with Jesus 
I, I don't know. But I suspect, given the hubbub, six, you know, some weeks before, some time before, around the crucifixion and resurrection, Pentecost, because we're still in that early time frame, I suspect that the man who is begging has heard of Jesus. But we don't know that. It doesn't say that to us. And he doesn't have to know Jesus in order to be healed by Jesus. Think of the Think of the, the woman who has been who has been having a period for 12 years. And she crawls up and touches Jesus hem. Jesus doesn't even know who does it. And yet she is healed. Right? The power of Christ is is mysterious and powerful and you know woe to those who want to put too many limitations or choose who can who can benefit from the healing power of Christ. Yes, sir? Scott, you know, I live, this healing is one of my favorites. Why? Why is this healing one of your because favorites? Before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, all healing was done in the name of God. Here, Peter, I truly believe that he truly believed that Jesus Christ is God. And I think that says, How far Peter has come, led by Jesus, because yes. just just think of what Jesus, the command Jesus gives him, yes. before he returns to the Father, go out and baptize, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they are working that out, and um, it is a remarkable thing that Peter heals this person in the name of Jesus Christ, and it fits with the remarkableness of the fact that in the earliest writings we have, pieces of it which go right back to the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the Christians are referring to Jesus the way that they would only talk about God. And these are radically monotheistic Jews. They reject the pagan world, the idea that there's multiple gods and goddesses. There's only one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet, you see in these early, early writings, which Acts is not, but I'm talking about like in the letters of Paul, but parts of the letters of Paul are like little creeds or hymns that go back earlier than the letter. And you see these phrases, this lifting up of... of of Jesus as Lord, as speaking of Jesus as you would only speak of God. And perhaps in Peter here, with the in the name of Jesus Christ, you see the burgeoning, right? The beginning of this understanding. Now, if you ask me, does Peter at that moment have magically planted in him, implanted in him some deep understanding of the Trinity? And I would say no. All of that comes. You, because God chooses to work with us, right? God is not a God of the magic wand. So scripture is God's word for his people and it's our journal of our life with God as God's people, right? So, so it is God breathed and yet it doesn't overwhelm and erase the humanness that goes into the writing of the scriptures. So 
all along, you can see this, this beginning and burgeoning and deeping understanding of who Jesus is, and it leads them to this remarkable insight into the nature of the triune God. But it, it will take time. That's why there isn't in anywhere in the New Testament this nice, neat little statement about the Trinity. One was inserted much later because Christians kind of wished it was there, but it is built from all the pieces of the New Testament. And I would submit that this is one of them, the what you taught in the name of Jesus Christ, he heals them. Great. Anything else? Is this is the first one in the in the book of Acts? Yes. Whether other things happen that Luke doesn't record, I don't know. But it's the first in the book of Acts. It won't be the last. So. Yes. Did you say that it's the Holy Spirit where the lame person comes to know God? The Holy the Holy Spirit is the is God's presence with us so it is the Holy Spirit who would who would lift up this person and who would heal this person but a way to refer to the Holy Spirit is which Paul does is the Spirit of Christ so we're tempted sometimes to take the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and divide them up too far we have the Father we have the Son we have the Holy Spirit and we think of them sort of like well, like, I don't know, three of us in some way. But that's not it, because there's only one God. They're not three gods, there's only one God. So can you refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ? Yes, you could. Could you refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of the Father? Yes, you could, right? And, and if you feel like, well, there's pieces of this that in the end, I find a little bit unclear that's okay that's okay this is what Lauren and I spend hours talking about yes it is because you're talking about the deepest mysteries not in the sense of something you can't know but the deepest kind of in that sense the deepest mysteries of the nature of God and it is intellectual arrogance to think that we could master all of that just like any quantum physicist worth his or her salt would tell you it would be intellectual arrogance to think that you can understand and master all of the intricacies of the quantum reality in the world. Richard Feynman, the smartest guy in the last hundred years, said no. If you think you've mastered the, the quantum nature of reality, you're kidding yourself. He says, I don't, I don't really understand. I, I can do the math. It's all math. And it works. But do I really understand it? No. That's, for me, that's kind of how it is with some of this. So, but does that mean you should just throw up your hands and walk away and say, ah, whatever? No. It, it's valuable to probe deeper and deeper into the scriptures. What is this saying about God, the nature of God, the character of God? And that's what we do. Right? So, so it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful project to be on. To because you're just, what are we striving for? 
we're striving to know God better. Right? God has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. You want to come to know God better, in, similarly to the way that you would want to come to know a person in this room better. They're going to have to reveal themselves to you. Right? They, you know, yeah, that's how you really get to know someone. When they really, like, what do we say? They open up, you know, and that's what God does in Scripture, in what God does and doesn't do. Wow, okay. I do, I do have a question. Yes. Yes. Why do you think Peter thought he could heal that person? Why? That's another good question. Okay, you know what? It's why do I think? I, you know, why do I think? How did Peter know that he could heal that person? I would say that he felt the power of the Holy Spirit within himself, including this understanding that God wanted to use him not only to speak, but to act. And how, exactly how that works itself out in him, I don't know. Um, but it does, because he's clearly very bold, right? Because he just looks, says, I, I don't have silver or gold for you, but I have something more in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And the man does. Now, do you wonder maybe Peter was a little bit, whoa. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But clearly, Peter is a very changed. You, you are to see Peter in the book of Acts, these early chapters, is a very changed man. And how do we account for the change? The power and work of the Holy Spirit. Do not reduce it to the ways we talk every day about people changing in their work or at home or gosh, he's a new man or what. You, 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 have, to, you have to see that this is all driven by the Holy Spirit and then take the next step and understand that the Holy Spirit is still working in the church today. So, let me just take, give you an example. And that's not going to be about me. Okay, it's going to be about Arthur. I've had numerous people come up to me and say to me in recent months, Arthur's sermons are getting better and better. Now, one way to see that is, is, is the, well, Arthur's just practicing more, right? And he's getting more experience. But he's got a lot. What's happening? With Arthur, I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit is working with more and more power through Arthur. And it shows up in his sermons. That's what I would say. That, that, that to me is the kind of response that we should come to. Right? So that we see the power of God at work in the church, in ourselves, even today, and not sit around waiting for a miracle. If you only see God working through miracles, you're going to miss 99% of it. Right? Because things that we see that people 100 years ago or 200 years ago would have seen as miracles, we don't see them as miracles today. Right? Because we have explanations for a lot more things. Why? Because we use our God-given faculties to understand more about God's creation through medicine and biology 
and botany and all these different things. Yes? I was going to mention in Mark 10, when Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples, two by two, he gave them the power to do the miracles. They came back and even the devil shook when they used his name in the power of Jesus Christ and they could heal it, even the devil. So, so, so a, you're right. Mark 10, Jesus Mark sent 10, the disciples yeah. out. Two by two. two by two, so it extends far beyond, there's 72 of them, so it extends far beyond the 12, right? right? And he gives them the power, power to, heal, to heal, right? So that's a good thing to connect to right. Acts 3, three. isn't it? Exactly. Yes, that's which is what we're, we should always be striving to right. make connections like this. Some of them will be little connections, some of them will be big connections. But this power, what does, why are they given the power of healing? Is it, is, it, is it merely so that they could go out and do good, compassionate things for people? I would submit no. That these healings are, they are, they are moments where the kingdom of God breaks out and is fully present. Because in the kingdom of God there are no lame, there are no blind, the rest of it. So, and it is also a sign to people that indeed the power of God and God's authority is with the ones doing these miracles. Always remember that there are only three periods in the Bible when miracles are done. Moses, Elijah, and in Jesus. And the immediate years after the apostles. And whether they continue after the, um, toward the end of the first century and later, that's something Christians debate today, right? So, um, because Peter seems to have the power to heal that he can call on. And I said last week, I don't think anybody today has that power. Yeah, I mean, there are others. There are others, sure. I mean, the, 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 and Paul does. I mean, the power is there, right? For God's, but as you move on in the growth of the church and those people die off does it continue is that passed on are there people today walking around who can call on the power of God to heal anyone that that person chooses that I would submit is not true I, I, I don't think it is but I don't want to argue about it either because Christians will argue about it until Jesus comes back and he can settle it okay wow chapter 3 generated lots of good questions anything else Well, you, Lauren, I, Scott, you are an amazing teacher. Well, thank you. And you have done the same for me. So it is an example of how God works through us. What I, I made my point because this church is not a TED Talk. This church is not simply a nonprofit organization like um, UT Southwestern or something. This is a fellowship created by God, formed by God for God's purposes. And we grow up nearly 24-7 bombarded by secularism. And it makes it very easy for us to see even the church that way. 
And so I am always talking about that. That no, this is not, this is not just a nonprofit. Be careful of the words we use. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always telling people, don't use business words. Find other words. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not a business. Can we use management methods here because we have all gobs of people on staff now? Well, yeah, but we're not a business. We can't think of it that way. If we think of it that way, it's, it's ruin. It's ruin. So anyway, okay. All right. So do y'all want to go on to chapter four? Yeah. All that, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Are we on a schedule? No. no. Are we glad for that? Yeah. yeah. See, y'all are so awesome. <laughs> yeah, well trained could be part of it, Jamie, yes, but no, y'all are y'all y'all are awesome. So in chapter three, it is the story um, of this lime beggar. And all that happens is you have the healing story, and then you have Peter getting up and talking to the crowd that is gathered around because of the spectacle. They all were familiar with this person. The temple, here we go, I'll put a slide up. Um, the temple is a busy place. Here's part of the courtyards with a colonnade behind it. Um, they're in Solomon's colonnade, this might be it. People don't really agree which side, east, south, north, west, or whatever is the col Solomon's colonnade, but that's okay. And Peter gets up and delivers a um, sermon to them. And it's an, again, a bold sermon that should, should convict some people in the crowd about their participation in the um, abandonment of Jesus and the persecution of Jesus. Um, and it's also one which you would expect would be ill-received by the leaders of Israel. The priests, the Pharisees, those who of anyone should know better, as Jesus puts it in John 3. So look at chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll just sort of plunge in, okay? So the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Now the Sad let's talk about the Sadducees for a second. The Sadducees are a group that we know principally, maybe only, by their appearance in the Gospels. They seem to be upper class folks, wealthier folks, um, who have aligned themselves with Rome, have aligned themselves with the priesthood. They do not want the world turned upside down. They do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the reason they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead is probably because they don't want the world turned upside down. And the resurrection of the dead is part and parcel of the day of the Lord. It's part and parcel of the world being turned upside down. And if you need to be reminded about that, you can go back to Luke chapter 1 and read the Mary's Magnificat, this song that she lifts up when she is with Elizabeth and is about the world, you know, the the rich being brought low and the poor being lifted up. Well, if you're up here, if you're on the top of this world, you don't really want it turned upside down, do you? That's, that's probably a message for all of us. 
So, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So let's pull that apart a little bit. This is of a, there's a direct line from here to Paul's letter, 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. He's the first one to be resurrected, and all the rest will follow. Hasn't happened yet, but Paul says that's the way to understand it. Jesus is first, and the day will come when all the rest are resurrected. So when Jesus, when they, when Jesus proclaims in his very own resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, or when Peter talks in those words, it is saying that in Jesus, in Jesus' resurrection, the day of the Lord has arrived. Everything has changed. And the powers that be don't like that. They want things to stay as they are. And so to proclaim that in Jesus, the day of the Lord arrived, the kingdom of God arrived, that to, to the priests and the temple guards and the Sadducees um, and the rest of the leaders of Israel, would be something that they would find greatly disturbing. So, any questions about that? Verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So this is the message at the end of chapter second, half of chapter 3. But many who heard the message believed. They, the Greek word underneath it is faith. It's just a verb form. So, though we don't use the verb form of the word faith, it would read this way. But many who heard the faith, message faithed. Right? Because it is about putting your faith in Jesus. It is about putting your faith and trust in the truth of Jesus, in the truth that indeed He died for your sake. Many who heard the message believed, faithed. So the number of men who faithed grew to about 5,000. So the community is growing. By leaps and bounds, the community is growing. What community? The community of believers. Um, the community of those who are embracing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. It doesn't mean that they're all at the point of embracing Jesus as God Almighty and ready to profess, you know, the Apostles' Creed and all these other things that, that are developed in the decades and centuries to come. But they put their faith in Jesus. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the one through whom God is acting climactically. 
He is the one who is ushering in the kingdom of God. Those are all good Jewish ways to think about this. And everybody here is Jewish. Except for whatever. There might be a few odd Gentiles here and there. But you see, this is a Jewish audience. In the temple. In Jerusalem. Okay? The next day. So the they, poor guys spend the night in the hoose cow. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law. Those are all of the uppity-ups. The rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And us, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. Now the priest, high priest family at this point was dynastic. Passed from father to son to son to son. And in the Gospels, who is the high priest that Jesus is brought before? Caiaphas. And here, who does it say the high priest is? Yes, Annas. So, is Luke mistaken? I don't think so. We refer to the current president, Biden, as the president. We refer to past presidents as president. Do we not? Same idea in my mind. Yep, yep, nothing to get uptight about. What? Caiaphas is probably the son. Right, so, so he is the heir. He, so he is probably the one holding the office, the actual executing the office at the time. But Pops, you know, would still be properly addressed as the high priest. And you can bet when Pops is in the room, right, Pops carries a lot of weight. Just like in my family. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. She should. Really, she should. <laughs> yes. I, I, you know, I was, we were reflecting the other day that now in my family, in the Engel family, as far as we know, I am the patriarch. I'm the oldest of the family alive today. Wow. <laughs> That's, well, I would say it's daunting, but it's really not. It's what we do. We age. You know, there we go. So, all the uppity-ups are there. Now, where are they? Where are they meeting? They are probably... See, see, so here... Look at this. I got my green pointer. I won't blind anybody today. Here is the... This is the temple. The entire temple mount. The colonnades on the outside. These big shaded areas. There are inner courtyards. And there is the temple proper. The tall structure. Okay? It's believed that the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council, which is probably what's happening here, is meets in a room inside the temple proper. Now there will be people who will take issue with that, but 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 a lot of scholars think that they meet they're meeting somewhere inside this structure. It could be somewhere outside in a room, you know, off and under the temple. Um, you know, these inner courtyards and things. But anyway, not terribly interesting, but there you go. So that's, so they're meeting. And they, verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them. And they began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Because names carry power in the ancient world. 
in the ancient Near East, regardless of the culture you're talking about, names carry power. They, they carry authority. You don't casually reveal your name to somebody. The same way today you don't casually reveal your social security number to somebody. Because if you do, in a sense, it might give them some power over you. Um, so it's always, there are many significant moments when names are revealed. And the most significant name revealing is what? It's when God reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. That's the biggie, right? That, that's the biggie. So here, um, to say by what power or by what name is essentially those are just repetitive. You can say by what name, by what power, they're repetitive. And so they ask people, by, Peter and John, by what power or name did you do this? Because everybody can see this guy who had been lame now up and walking around, right? A wise person, I heard a wise person say something a few months ago, says, you know, this is the world of American politics. You can't spin something people see with their own eyes. It doesn't work. They see it. You can't tell them they didn't see it. They saw it. So, same thing here. Everybody sees it. Well, look at Peter. Then Peter. What? What does it say? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke doesn't want you to forget that. That's what's going on here. So this is God's empowering presence is with Peter and fills Peter in a way that Peter was not filled before Jesus before Pentecost. You can explain a lot of things about Peter and his denial of Jesus and Peter after and Jesus Peter before and why didn't he get this and why does he say this? But you have to understand that the Holy Spirit arrives at Pentecost and is given to them as individuals and is given to them as the body of Christ at Pentecost. So there is the before and there is the after. Because just as Jesus' resurrection is a mark of the arrival of the kingdom of God, so is Pentecost, a mark of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Because it, the kingdom of God is the, king, is, is the time of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. Does it mean that God's empowering presence, God's Spirit, wasn't working before, because we could go through the Old Testament and we could trace the work of the Spirit, but it's different now. Things are different. The, the, all the families of the earth is now actually going to happen. The Jews before, um, even the Jews after Jesus, they tended to have a very strong sense of ethnic privilege. They had the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins, by golly. And other peoples might think they were crazy because they thought there was only one God and this one God had chosen them, but no. They were Abraham's people. <laughs> but now, it's past that. 
Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them. Baptize them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go, Jesus says, be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. End of Matthew, beginning of Acts. It's changed. It's all changed. It's not like, you know, like if you look at a graph, you can have a graph with like a little trend line on it. That's not what's happening. It's this big, what's happened is this big dislocation. The big, the, the, there's the before and there's the after. The before, and it's enormous. And it's big. And, and the Holy Spirit is filling Peter with strength and power, including the power to heal. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Ah, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, ah, what a good way to put it. You're making a, well, I spent a night, night in jail and you've hauled me before your fancy pants council. <laughs> I have all these really old man phrases I trot out or on a regular basis. My, my sons all roll their heads, their eyes. But if we are being called to account for an act of kindness, an act of compassion, this man is healed. It makes, it's so evocative of, of Jesus in his healings. When he, the Pharisees would get upset with him. Remember the time that he heals on the Sabbath? And they say, how dare you? You're breaking the Sabbath law. The guy can wait. <laughs> ah, let, let him wait. It's all right. He's been, he's been crippled this long. What's another day or two? Who cares? <laughs> and I, you know, I read that story and I'm thinking to myself, Jesus is thinking, would you want to spend another day? Would you want to spend another day crippled? No. It's an act of mercy. It's an act of kindness. It isn't a breaking of the Sabbath. It is a, it, it is the restoration of life, and it's a restoration of order. It's a restoration of, 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 of God's good creation to heal this man. So why wait? So here it is. If you're going to call me, call us to, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. If you're asking me, then you better be ready to hear it. You, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Wow. Peter is indeed very bold because he doesn't just give them the answer. There is also this ever-present reminder that you are the ones who rejected Jesus. You rejected him in his crucifixion. You've re you're rejecting his resurrection. You're rejecting, rejecting, rejecting. And then he quotes from Psalm 118. This is just a little phrase in Psalm 118. The stone you builders rejected 
which has become the cornerstone. And he points that phrase at Jesus. Of course he does. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus. Rejected and the cornerstone. They're rejecting the very Messiah that God sent them. And then he goes on. Verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name <coughs> under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So let's talk about that, okay? Because we live in a world which, doesn't, which often doesn't want to hear this. Because this is viewed as very exclusionary. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So let's look at the, at the logic of this. What is the fundamental human problem that lies at the, at the very heart of the brokenness in human lives, the brokenness in this world? Sin. And what is sin? At the very heart of it separation from God and what gives rise yeah, I could go what gives rise to the separation from God human rebellion what see this is why these Genesis stories are so important what happens in Genesis 3 they're told one thing they shouldn't do and they decide ah, we know better and so they do it they rebel against God much the same way you're eight-year-old might rebel against you as a parent. When I was a parent, they did it quite a bit, honestly. But it's, it's that human rebellion, and it creates the separation. And the word that we put to the separation is sin. But it is that separation that we have in view. And God's desire is what? To reconcile humanity with God. To bring back together what is separated by this human rebellion, by sin. Think of it as the end of, not the end, it's not the full end, but in the parable of the prodigal son. When the son comes running, comes home, what does the father do? He runs to him and sweeps him up in his arms. Reconciliation, you're putting the, you're putting the relationship back in the right place. You're are rectifying what went wrong, this, which is this separation. So boom, you want to put it back, you want to put it back together. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of what's happening. So, reconciling humanity with God. So, salvation has to be found in whom? God. Oh, don't get to Jesus yet. In God. It's God in humanity. Right? So, is Jesus God? Yes. 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 Fully and completely God. This is where we'll get theological for a minute. Fully and completely God? Yes. Do the Father, the Son, and the Spirit comprise the triune God? Yes. Do they share a purpose? Yes. A will. 
Yes. What creed teaches us that? Nicene and Athanasian, right? The Athanasian creed does. They, so, all right? So, it's, it's, oh gosh, what word do I want to use? I need to be careful here. It's, yeah. It is foolish. It is foolish to say that you can embrace God but deny Jesus. That doesn't make sense. You can't say, well, I want to embrace God if, the, you know, if our understanding of God is correct and yet deny Jesus. For Christians, there's no pulling this stuff apart. Jesus is fully and completely God. So, of course, Jesus is the only name by which you can be saved because Jesus is God. There's no path to God that lies outside Jesus. It's just logical. It has to be that way. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not exclusion. We're not, not goodness, the last thing we want to do is be exclusionary because all, all the families are to be blessed. We want to call everybody to God. But that's how it is. That's why these places show up throughout the New Testament. There is salvation through no one else because God became incarnated the person of Jesus. So the question is, coming to embrace Jesus, um, is coming to embrace God. Yes, Charlotte? But isn't that exactly what the Jews did? The Jews accept God but reject Jesus. Some. What's happening at this time? Are these people here, are, is Peter Jewish? Yes. yes, is John Jewish? Yes. Will Paul be Jewish? Yes. Philip Jewish? On and on down the line, the 5,000 we read about, are they Jewish? Almost all of them, I'm certain. So, they are not rejecting Jesus. Some Jews do reject Jesus. Some Jews do not reject Jesus. So, the Jews of today, well, the Jews of today reject Jesus. And so, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul wrestles with the question of Jews, his fellow Jews who have rejected Jesus. And I think the proper way to read the critical passages in chapter 11 are that, are that God has a plan, a way to bring them back in. Because, of course, Paul's heart weeps for his fellow Jews who have rejected Jesus because he understands the implications of it. Right? So he, he says, no, God's going to bring Israel back in, which I find fully consistent with, with, you know, God's purposes here. But Charlotte, there's just, you can't, you can't claim to fully know God and reject Jesus unless we Christians are simply wrong. Now, what is the linchpin on, this is like a little... What's the linchpin on which our Christian proclamation stands or falls? Oh, y'all are so good. Wow. A's all around today. Okay, yes, the resurrection. I just heard an Old Testament scholar, um, uh, and it was actually a little video that I watched recently, explaining this. He says, look, 
the Christian proclamation stands or falls on the truth of Jesus' resurrection. And all he's doing is quoting Peter, not Peter, he's quoting Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul writes, well, you know, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, in essence, we're wasting our time. We've believed a lie. Our faith has been in vain. So stay home on Sundays and read your New York Times or whatever newspaper you want to read because if Jesus was not resurrected, Christianity falls into dust. And Paul's right. But if Jesus was resurrected, it changes everything. And our proclamation of God, triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, stands strong, evidenced by the truth of Jesus' resurrection. All right. Preach it. Okay. So verse 12 is really pivotal. Okay. It, it's really, a, it's kind of a big verse in the book of Acts. It's a big verse in un, really, really confronting what Christianity is and is not. And, and it isn't just an arbitrary statement. The underlying story, the underlying logic of what's happening in the world, of what God is doing in the world, is brought to bear in this verse 12. So, any thoughts or questions about that? Yes, sir. Were there so many healings at this time and miracles? I don't understand why the Sadducees and Sanhedrin aren't absolutely amazed that this person Okay, so the question is, I mean, I mean, the Sadducees and the priests, I mean, they can all see that the man was healed. And the question was, well, were there like a bunch of miracles happening at this time? And that's why they didn't really see it and embrace it? So I have two answers to that. First of all, there were many miracle doers at this time. Think, go back to the time of the story of Moses and Pharaoh. Remember when the plagues start coming? Remember the magicians that Pharaoh has? They're able to keep up for a while, right? They're able to do what Moses did until they drop out of the race because they can't keep up any longer, right? They're in the course of the book of Acts. We will meet others who have, or are seen by the people as capable of doing miracles. That's the danger of pinning too much of Jesus's divinity and meeting on the doing of miracles, right? Indeed, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the doing of miracles is explicitly not a sign to, to, to who Jesus is. Um, well, let me go back, because I, I said two things, and I can't remember the second. What was your question again? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, so... Let's think about how people are. When people are powerful and in charge and wealthy beyond anyone's wildest dreams, is it easy for them to blind themselves to reality in order to protect their position, power, and authority? Yes. Isn't that true in 2024? Yes, of course it is. Are these people really that different from us? No. 
So, you know, yeah, there. you put those two things together and you, you end up, I think, at a reasonable understanding of why they are rejecting this man. Now, Patty? I was going to say something similar. I was going to say, isn't it because they are just so um, completely happy with the status quo? They're happy. Jesus is preaching or did preach uh, prior to this day we're talking about um, a world turned upside down. Yes. They don't want anything. They don't want any. They don't want the world turned upside down. It's here's my here's my teaching. Well, you've heard this a thousand times, Patty. So let's go for a thousand and one. So it's like we might say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But could you like at least wait till after the Super Bowl? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the same idea. It's kind of the same idea, right? Like I, I want you to come, but I don't really want you to mess with my world too much. Yeah. But you see, when Jesus comes, the world is going to be messed with. Yes, Lauren. One last thing to add. It's so interesting, too, because if they're like the keepers of the law and the ones that have it memorized and the ones that hold order and all this stuff, don't you think they want to be a part of it? Like, there's just <coughs> got to be this interpersonal dynamic of like, you're kidding. The Messiah came and we weren't a part of it. And he's not, you know, through the Sanhedrin or in our dinner groups or anything like this. It's someone who's hanging out with the lame. What? What? Like what? Got to be such a hard and where do we where do we see cycle. where do we see that encapsulated? Go to John three. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, yeah. goes to see Jesus in the night, and and Jesus ends up saying to him, "How can you not get this? You're a teacher of the law, a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand what's happening. How could that be?" And I think position, power, and authority blind people. We're all blinded in different ways, to be honest with you, right? We're all blinded in different ways. That, that's a way to describe symptoms of the darkness in the human heart. But people in, with power, people in positions of authority, who have great wealth, it's very easy for them to be blinded and to rationalize all kinds of things in order to protect their position, authority, and money they have to confront their own sin, which yes none of us want to do none of us we do. don't want to do it but especially these guys these guys would have to admit they were wrong that they had crucified the true messiah how could they do that no matter what evidence you presented to them i i you know i've wondered sometimes if one or two of them might have seen the resurrected jesus because we're told by paul that jesus was resurrected and seen by 500 men and women. Did none of these people in authority see any of that? I think they might have and they just thought, would have thought it was what? A trick? A ghost? Something. Some way to rationalize and explain away why they could ignore it. Okay. Well, anything else? My phone gives me all these weird little messages all day long. I like my f Apple Watch and I don't like it all at the same time. Is it voting day? Oh, early voting starts today. Okay.
Well, whatever. Leave me alone, folks, you political people. Okay. I'm high on Jesus, low on politics. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, who's the they? The Sanhedrin. These leaders, these uppity-ups. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. You bet they were. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Aha. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They know these are some of those Jesus people. It's evident to them. But the guy is standing right there and the crowd is probably big. There was nothing they could say. So they offered them, they offered Peter and John to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. So they said, guys, go, you know, go outside the conference room and we're going we're gonna to chat about this. Verse 16, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, and what's this thing? What's the thing they, they feel they must stop? Jesus. The whole Jesus movement. Which they probably see as what? What kind of word in our language might they use? A cult. Yeah, think about it. It's a cult within Judaism. About this Jesus guy. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Which name? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Well, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. How do you think that's going to go over? not going to go over well. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to God? That's who the hymn is. That's who the pronoun is referring to. What is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to God? You be the judges. Well, that's an obvious choice. If someone presents you with that choice, you know what your answer always is? what God says. You want to do what's right? Do what is right in God's eyes. Your heart will sometimes betray you. Learn what is right in God's eyes. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know what is good, what is pleasing, what the will of God is. Yes, Pat? Not that they would, but 
the they being the, they have the, power. the power, the elders, the rulers, and so no, forth. Well, you mean that they might, the, the rulers and leaders might fear for their own safety because they've seen the power of Christ, you know, heal this man? Maybe, but do they, you think they see in Peter and John the elements of violence? Do you think they ever saw in Jesus the elements of violence? No. See, what kind of threat did Jesus pose to them? Did Jesus pose a threat to them? Were they afraid Jesus was going to come after them and their families and something? No. It was, it was that the people were embracing Jesus in his way rather than the way of the priests and what that might mean. So, you know, I, I think that the... The way to think about the, the, what might be seen as fear, if there is any on the part of the rulers and elders, is this astonishment. Look what's happened. And we're all a little bit, we all can be, right, a little bit taken aback. What did I just see? And a little bit frightened of something that, that I can't really explain. I think that's a common human experience. But in any event, they call him in and they say, you know, don't talk anymore like this. And John, Peter and John say, what is, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, famously, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is a mission given to them by Jesus. By God. <laughs> kind of like Kind of like whom? Who's on a mission from God? The Blues Brothers. Oh, yes. Okay, see, all right. I yanked you right out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I, I taught a class on Paul, I came and dressed like one of the Blues Brothers. I did. I did. This was years and years and years ago. Back when I was thin and lovable. And... <laughs> And I had the little hat and the sunglasses and as close as I could get to the deal. Yep, yep. Now I'm nice and chubby like John Belushi, so it'd probably even work better. <laughs> so as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Of course that's going to be their reply. These rulers and elders are not going to dissuade them any more than they chase Jesus off. Jesus had a vocation to which he remained faithful all the way to death, even death on the cross, Philippians 2. These men have a vocation and they are going to remain faithful to that vocation even under threat from the rulers and elders and Sadducees and priests and temple guards and the whole, the whole bunch. Well, verse 21, after further threats they let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Again, you can't spin what people can see. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. I mean, we're talking ancient. This guy is ancient. Huh, over 40. 
Yeah. I heard it over here. That's my waist size. It once was mine. Okay. But now, we're going to start this next section, but I don't want to race through it. Because the, the question is, what about the believers? Just these regular folks. They're not Peter and John. They didn't walk with Jesus. The Holy Spirit dwells in them. Right? They're filled with the power of God. Let's see how they react. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Verse 24, when they heard this, this is the community of believers, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Because they are going to lift up a portion of a psalm. Right? And David wrote many of the psalms. The psalms are the uh, Hebrew prayer book. And I'll just share with you again, I'm sure I've done it. I didn't understand the Psalms for a long time in this overriding sense. I thought I was to go to the book of Psalms and find a Psalm that expressed my heart at the moment and then pray that Psalm. That's not it. That's not it. You are to let the Psalms shape your heart. You're to let the Psalms shape your heart because our hearts betray us. Our hearts are like, they're, they're, they're not gonna, it's like they're off course and they're gonna lead you off course. And so they have to, our hearts have to be reshaped. Our minds have to be transformed to put us and to keep us on course and the Psalms reshape our hearts. That's the thing about the Psalms. That's the things about, you know, I, we grow up in different traditions. As an Episcopalian kid, which I didn't know Brian Colligan was who preached, he's, as an Episcopalian kid, we used a lot of written prayers, prayers that were handed down to us, prayers written by others. And some of the folks here at St. Andrew come from traditions that don't really do that. Everything that's prayed is, is just comes out of you at that moment. And I think there's value in both, but there is certainly value in the prayers handed down to us because they, they shape us. They can shape our hearts. You can, you can learn language and so forth in those prayers that you are not gonna just come up with if it's just out of your own little mind and heart at that moment. So, um, these people lift, do what you would expect them to do. They lift up a psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh and against whom? His anointed one. Now, the anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. And it comes into English as Messiah. It comes into Greek as Christos. 
And Christos comes to us as Christ. So Messiah, Messiah, Christ, they're all synonyms. They're all speaking of the anointed one. They are all terms of royalty. Why do the nations plot? Why do they rise up against God and his Messiah? His king. Against King Jesus. Why? 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 Verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. There's that word again. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. There we go. What do they pray for in the face of threats? In the face of jail time? What do they pray for? Security? Nope. Dinner? Nope. What do they pray for? Boldness. 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 That's what they pray for. They pray that God will strengthen them in such a way that they aren't deterred from proclaiming the gospel despite their fears, despite what the threats are. You, you can imagine how this was read by Christians who were, who ha, who were being persecuted for their faith which would happen for hundreds of years, not empire-wide. Empire-wide persecution didn't happen for about 250 years. But in time, from place to place and time to time, the Christians were persecuted. And um, this is a, the, these, these believers are setting, setting the path. They're showing the way. They're praying for boldness. Um, I remember there's a commentator some of you might have heard of named Hugh Hewitt. Hugh Hewitt has been around for a while. And a long time ago, he wrote a book called The Embarrassed Believer. And he thought that, you know, Christians were too timid about proclaiming their faith. And I will admit that when I read that book, I was, I was convicted. I was, you know, it just seemed to me that, you know, even saying grace in public was like a little too much of a deal. But God brought me to a different place. And with the help of Patty and especially one woman who led us into a discussion of this one night when we were, I don't forget what we were doing, but anyway, yeah, so I, I, I moved past all of that. We. We are never to be embarrassed. We are never to be shy. We are never to be timid. We are to proclaim Jesus in word and deed with boldness. The world needs it so desperately. People come. I remember my good friend Barbara Staff, who was in my Tuesday class. She's now passed, passed. But she, she, she would. Oh, Scott, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this world? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I said, well. Barbara, you gotta yeah, yeah, you gotta pray, 
we got to proclaim Jesus. We just got to stay with that. Just stay with that. There's no magic formula here. You just got to stay with it. You got to you got to live in Jesus's way. You got to be willing to talk about Jesus and you got to be willing to pray. And that's what that's what Jesus gives us to do. That's our part. That's our part in this. Yes. Yes. The same man that denied. Denied Jesus three times. Who has now become so bold. Yes. And as a human being, I hope I learned from that. Yes. And know that the same Holy Spirit who brought Peter from denial to boldness dwells in you. That's, that's what Christians are not, not enough Christians are taught. They don't even understand that the Holy Spirit dwells in them. And they are, so it is a connected then to Peter who is brought from the Nile to boldness just because he just kind of grew as a person? No! Because the Holy Spirit dwelt in him and the power of God was a power that Peter could rely on, and that same power, the person of the Holy Spirit, dwells in each of us. And when we come back next week, we will talk a little bit more about their reaction, and then the second look inside the community of believers there, okay? And um, that will be, be great. So... God, I just have one thing to say. Okay. I know it was not intended to be, but today was a great sermon. It was. It was really, really good. And if today was a sermon, what does that say about what the book of Acts is? It's filled with sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. Well, I think it was your comments. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Jim. All right. So, let's pray. Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, hold us close. Let remind us, help us remember who we are. Now we were called here by you for a purpose. To proclaim your son Jesus Christ in word and even more importantly in how we live. Help, others, help us to live lives in which others see Christ. Every day. Every hour of every day. Help us to be bold in all of this for our proclamation of your Son, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is a true proclamation about what happened two years ago, 2,000 years ago, and it's all the implications of that are with us still even today. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.